0: Quite a passage we have to cover this morning, I think. Uh, open your Bibles if you haven't already. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter two. And to get you caught up, some of you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we are in week three of a series in Ecclesiastes that will just walk through this incredibly relevant book between now and uh, about the end of September. Ecclesiastes represents the voice of Solomon, one of the wisest men in the the world has ever known, and clearly the wisest man of his time. And what Solomon's doing in this book is he's sort of pushing against the boundaries of all that life has to offer. And he's saying, is there meaning here? Is there meaning here? Is there meaning here? In the context of his search is what he keeps referring to as life. Under the sun. What does that mean? Life under the sun is the world that we live in. And we remember this world that we live in is not the way it's meant to be. The world we live in is fallen. It's a broken creation where things don't always make sense, where there's not satisfaction and fulfillment. So you have this wealthy man, this wise man, this powerful man that's exploring all that this broken creation has to offer. And he's coming up empty everywhere he turns. And this repeating phrase, it was all vanity. Vanity or it was all futile, or it was all meaningless. Last week, Lloyd walked us through chapter one, and he worked hard to do it, right? If you were here, you know what I'm talking about. Um, He talked about three great truths that were, you know, kind of emerged from the passage. Uh, There is something wrong with everything. There is something always missing, and we can't do anything to fix it. It was a pretty cheery um, Mother's Day, right? (laughs) It was, a, it was actually a really helpful message. And so where Lloyd was going is, in light of those three great realities, those hard, even depressing realities that are just true about life that Solomon is teaching, we're all walking a treadmill to try to fill the gaps, the void caused by those three truths with all kinds of various things. And the, the analogy of the treadmill is you work really hard and you don't get anywhere. This was Solomon's quest. This was Solomon's journey. This is what's going on. It's a great image for us. So this morning, we're gonna focus on one of the categories that Solomon went after. And honestly, I think it's the one that may be the most relevant for us, the pleasures of life. I think this may be the thing that most of us in this room and clearly in our culture and society, we try more than anything else to plug into the gaps, to plug into the voids that are left by those three truths that Lloyd taught from last week in chapter one. So let me just give you some thoughts around this for our society and culture, because by the way, if you ever hope to live the kind of life that's a witness of Jesus, and and I hope that's the desire that we have here at Fellowship, we have to understand the culture that we're living in. And not only that, we have to understand that we're always a bigger part of that culture than we think we are. So the pleasures of life are ubiquitous in our culture. Like They're all around us. Maybe never has there been a society in the history of earth that has as easy access and as many choices for pleasurable things. Things that literally stimulate all five of our senses. Uh, At the risk of embarrassing myself, Let me walk you through my day today, like focusing on the little pleasures of life, all right? See how many of these things you identify with or something comparable. This morning, I woke up with my head on a feather pillow. I was in a room darkened by room-darkening shades because I don't want the sun to wake me up too early. Uh, I had hot water for my shower. That's amazing if you think about it historically. Um, I put hazelnut creamer in my coffee. Don't judge, okay? By the way, of all the flavor combinations in the world, hazelnut, you know? Like, who thought of that in coffee? Somebody did, I'm enjoying it. Uh, On my drive here, I listened to one of my favorite podcasts in my car, which, by the way, was connected to my phone by Bluetooth. You know, this, this is amazing. Later today, I'll eat some kind of delicious food for lunch. I haven't decided What kind yet? But I've got lots of choices, and so do you. Maybe I'll take a nap. I like to do that on Sundays after I preach when I'm able. If I do take a nap, it will be on my four-layer memory foam mattress. (laughs) For dinner later on, I will eat some more delicious food. In between, we've got a fellowship group gathering, our last one for the year. And we've decided last week we're going to have ice cream Sundays today at our fellowship group gathering. Don't be jealous. Before I go to bed, I might watch something on Netflix or maybe a movie, and then I will lay my head back on that feather pillow and I'll have uh, some comforting white noise to help me drift to sleep. It sounds so indulgent when I read it all, but I'm like, this is kind of an average day. It's a typical day. You know. Maybe the nap's not average. Right? And and what about you? Like how different does your life actually look? My my point is not all that, that that's wrong. That's not my point. My point is we take for granted. We are inundated. We are awash in pleasures of life. So if they don't have meaning, as Solomon is saying, what do we do with all these? Like they either give us meaning to our lives or they don't. If they do, if the answer is yes, you know, you can kind of ignore what Solomon's saying here. What are you doing in the room this morning? Like, why aren't you sleeping in or why aren't you out on the golf course? Or, you know, why aren't you drinking your favorite coffee beverage right now and listening to music and, you know, doing all those other pleasurable things? But if the answer is no, that they don't bring true fulfillment, then how do we navigate a life that's absolutely filled with them? Like, how do we live as Christians knowing that our true fulfillment lies elsewhere but we live a wonderful life of pleasure in many, many ways. Uh, What are we to do with all these things? So this is what we're going to answer this morning. Three parts to the message. The pursuit of life's pleasures, the end result of life's pleasures, and the redemption of life's pleasures. That's what we're going to talk about. So let's start with the pursuit of life's pleasures, uh, beginning in verse 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to walk back through this text, uh, essentially verse by verse that Susan already read. I said to myself, you know, this is Solomon's voice here, "'Come now, I will test you with pleasure.'" by the way, who ever heard of a test like that, right? It's not a bad test. Much more enjoyable than tests of our high school and college students who have been enduring lately. I'm gonna test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself and behold, it too was futility. So here, like you know, he likes to do in this book, you've got a thesis statement. He's going ahead and telling us, here's what the quest was all about to see if there's any meaning in pleasures. And he's gonna go ahead and give us the final answer, the verdict. There was no meaning. And so the rest of the 10 verses we're gonna talk about is a detailed uh, tracking through the trajectory of Solomon's um, journey. Now, he is giving himself, at least in this stage of his life, to a philosophy of life that is alive and well in our time. We would call it hedonism. Hedonism. Now, before you get all judgy, okay, and say, oh yeah, I would never uh, devote myself to hedonism. uh, You need to hear the definition of hedonism. Here it is. Uh, Hedonism is the theory that pleasure is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. Now, if you don't believe that, and I hope you don't, you probably live like it, like I do okay? Honestly, much of my life, maybe most of my life, is living with this sort of practical belief that pleasure is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. And I'm guessing that for many of you in the room, that's true as well. The rallying cry of hedonism is enjoy yourself. As long as you're not hurting anyone else, be happy. Do whatever it takes to be happy. That's our culture. That's our society. We are more in that than we think we are. In fact, I would say hedonism is one of the core philosophical pillars of our culture. And we've gotta understand it, and we've gotta understand how we are more in it than we would like to admit. So as we walk through the verses that follow, we're not only gonna see how Solomon was on this quest of hedonism, I wanna show how I and you are on the same quest, even subconsciously, the same hedonistic journey that Solomon took. So let's dive into the first thing that he explored in verse two. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? Uh, now Solomon's not actually going after haha laughter per se. Like he's not against you know stand up comics or anything like this. If you dig into the word laughter there, what is actually getting after is this uh, frivolity, sort of a frivolous approach to life, a, a shallow approach that says everything's just funny, everything's kind of uh, uh, nothing. Nothing has substance. Nothing has depth to it. Uh, I don't want to feel emotional depth. I don't want to go deep in conversations. I'm going to keep everything above the line. Haha, funny, funny is this not a characteristic of our day? Uh, Every time I get a group of men together and the conversation goes away from sports or work into something a little more deep, somebody cracks a joke. Sometimes it's me. We get uncomfortable with depth. We wanna keep everything at the ha-ha level. Here's what we're actually doing. That's a coping mechanism to keep ourselves from feeling pain, to keep ourselves from actually entering and saying, actually guys, if I'm honest, it's hard. It's a wreck. I'm not feeling any sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. So I'm just keeping myself above the line with frivolous entertainment and jokes. And this is our culture. It's hard for us to take anything seriously. Solomon is saying this kind of approach to life is madness because it denies reality. That's what he means, laughter's madness. That's what he's actually getting after. It doesn't mean that it's not healthy to laugh at times. It absolutely is. Let's keep moving. The next thing he explored, verse three. "'I explored with my mind "'how to stimulate my body with wine "'while my mind was guiding me wisely, "'and how to take hold of folly "'until I could see what good there is "'for the sons of men to do under heaven "'the few years of their lives.'" Alcohol was the next stop on Solomon's hedonistic journey. His goal, interestingly, was not to just, you know, give himself to be a a drunken stupor. His, His goal was to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. In other words, his approach to drinking was as an experiment to see if chemically altering his body would result in more well-being and greater meaning to life. Now think about this. Alcohol was really the the primary chemical stimulant or the, the, the primary way they could alter their bodies chemically in that day. And that's still certainly one for us, but we have access to all kinds of other chemical stimulants as well. What we know about the human brain now that Solomon could not have known, even with all his wisdom, is that these chemicals have a diminishing effect over time. So you have to kind of keep providing more and more stimuli for what your brain now demands. And so this is how experiments become addictions that destroy well-being and meaning rather than create well-being and meaning. So Solomon didn't know all of that, but he knew enough to know that chemically altering his body did not give his life the meaning that he was after. And so he moved on, you know, fortunately for him, he didn't look like he didn't get too far down in that trap. I'm sure in a, in a room this size, and those of you that are watching online or listening later as well, there are a number of us that have struggled or are currently struggling with the same tendency. Here's just with love and grace as one of your pastors, here's what I'd wanna say with you. If you're someone that is struggling with an addiction, some, any kind of chemical addiction, talk about it with someone. Just someone in your life that you trust, just be real. You know, that's the only way forward. What you know in your heart of hearts is there's not real substance there. There's not real life there, right? We keep it under the surface because we don't know the way out. Well, the way out is always gonna walk through this path of not letting your shame keeping things hidden. And by the way, I'll just say this: you know, if you don't have someone you can trust in your life, Would you trust one of us to be a safe place for you? Would you email me or email one of our pastors? Let us try to get you help. Uh, We want for you more life than what you're currently experiencing. Well, Solomon moves on, I'd like us to move on as well. The next four verses we're gonna take as a block, verses four to seven, let me read through those. I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. This is a very interesting section. If you can picture the topography of Jerusalem, you know, it is what you think it is. It's a very dry, arid climate. Jerusalem's in the southern part of Israel. So even today, it's a a mostly dry desert region. If you're traveling through Israel and you see something that is green and flourishing, you know water is there. And today it's most often irrigation because there's not a lot of natural water sources. Water was during Solomon's time, still is today, their most valuable resource. So what Solomon did literally was create an oasis in the desert. Houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, ponds, forests. And he says, I had to irrigate it, right? I had ponds so that I could have Forests And what do the forests give you? Well, they give you shade and they give you building supplies and you can have a lot of fun. You know, it's turning a desert into an oasis. Um, There's an interesting word in verse five. It's translated into English as parks. You know, it's, it's not like Pinkerton Park or, you know, Concord or whatever. It's not that kind of park. It's actually the word that we get paradise from. He built a paradise. Solomon was literally creating a paradise. Now what he was ultimately doing, if you think about it, whether he was conscious of it or not, he was trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. This is essentially what he's doing. A lot of commentators have noted this. They're like, if you read through that description, it's eerily similar to what the Garden of Eden is described of in Genesis 1 and 2. He had food, he had shelter, he had comfort, he had beauty. Everything was designed by him to insulate him from the wilderness, from the desert. Now, what's significant about this theologically is ever since mankind, you know, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, were expelled from the garden, ever since that event, we've been trying to get back into the garden ever since. In an honestly sort of metaphorical but but substantive ways. Um, finally, after thousands of years of this, you know, post Adam and Eve, thousands of years of of men and women trying to get back into the garden, you finally have a human being who's wealthy enough, powerful enough, and has the intellect enough to really go after a recreation of the Garden of Eden. You know, I I think probably even subconsciously. I don't don't know that he was intentionally doing this theologically. And so Solomon goes after it. Just as you would. Just as I would have. How do I know that? Because that's what we're doing now. Like, that's what all of us are doing today. You know, this is the instinct in all of us. All of us are basically trying to construct our own paradise, our own version of the first paradise, our version of the Garden of Eden. This is why sometimes you dream of a bigger home or you dream about property. Or if you have property, you dream about more property, or you dream about property in a different location. This is the explanation for your landscaping, for your remodeling, for your vacation spot, for your home theater, for your boat, for your lake house, for your boathouse. They're all kind of uh, a beach house. I guess you have a boathouse too. That'd be cool. Uh, They're all based on this fundamental instinct that you have to insulate yourself from outer wilderness and live in a, your own personal paradise. And you know all of our versions of paradise look a little bit different, but they're fundamentally the same. I was talking to uh, one of our long-term fellowship um, men a couple of weeks ago. And we were just not talking about biblical things at all. We were just talking about life. And our, our, our uh, conversation turned to our homes. You know, what we like about our homes, what we wish was different. We started talking about garage space. You know, anybody not have enough garage space, okay? And so I said, man, you know, when we were shopping for a house, there's this one house we looked at and it had a three-car garage, you know? And there's some other things about it we didn't like, but now I'm kind of wishing we'd bought the house with the three-car garage. And he was like, oh yeah, I wish I had a three-car garage too. And then he said this, he was like, actually, I wish I had a six-car garage. Yeah. <laughs> and he was laughing about it. And I was like, oh, he's not joking. You know, he's not joking, right? So that's his version of paradise. We're all forming our own version. This explains the good life, the the, the quest, the journey that we all have toward the good life. And why are we doing that? Well, if the three difficult truths that Lloyd taught us last week are true and they're coming from Ecclesiastes chapter one of Solomon's experience, we want to insulate ourselves from those. So this pursuit of the good life is another way to get on the treadmill and it's not actually getting us anywhere. This is what Solomon is finding out. Let's keep going. Um, Look at verse eight in two parts. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. This doesn't need a lot of explanation. Wealth is attractive not only for what it can buy, but for the security or status that it brings. So, what Solomon's talking about here is accumulating wealth, even more than he could spend. Okay, what's the point of excess accumulation? Think about it. What's the point of it? You know, some are like, well, I want something to give to my kids, or you know. No, no, no. Some of you in the room, not all of us, you know, some of you in the room have far more than you care to spend. What's the point of excess accumulation? I think primarily is either security or status. Some of us are more geared towards security. Some of us are more geared toward status. And so this is essentially what Solomon is saying. The key word in this verse is collected. I collected it. It's not even being used to spend. It's being collected. Um, I have this picture in my mind of uh, of Scrooge McDuck. You guys, some of you remember this uh, cartoon character? He had this whole warehouse of money he kept locked up. You know, the whole purpose of it is so that he could go in there on a rainy day or whatever and just swim in the money, right? This is security. This is status. The second half of verse eight, he talks about a couple more things. Uh, So if that one didn't get you, maybe one of these next two will. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Uh, Let's talk about the singers first. Solomon loved music. And that's something we can identify with in our area. I mean, music is amazing. It is such an incredible thing. I I don't know how music does what it does in us. And Solomon loved music. Now, there was no recorded sound in that day and age. So the only way you could enjoy music would be if someone was performing. Or maybe you're gifted enough, you know, you're performing and enjoying your own voice or whatever. Now, in this day and age, I didn't bring my phone up here with me, but we store recorded music as digital files on our phones. Solomon stored live performances or live live performers in his home. Like he, he stored them in there for the same reason that you've got all that music on your phone so you can enjoy it anytime you want. Man, he'd have a party every night. Who are we gonna dial up tonight? Okay, well, how about this group? How about that singer? Man, they got a new greatest hit. Let's put them up there. This is the world that Solomon lived in. He had the resources to be able to do this. Many concubines. Now, that's sadly a bit of an understatement when you read about Solomon. In 1 Kings 11, we find that he had, get ready for this, 700 wives and 300 concubines. And by the way, all that was very much in direct violation of God's commands. God allowed Solomon to collect all these women. Why? maybe one reason there can be a bit of redemption in this mess, so to speak, is for you and I today to actually reflect on Solomon's indulgences and see that there is no life in them. And this is what Solomon himself was able to say at the end of his life. All these concubines. Now, 1,000 women must not have meant anything more to him than, than all that money he had in the storehouse, right? They're essentially status symbols, And and likely sort of an insecure man that's trying to find identity and trying to reinforce to himself and others the fact that he has power. That's probably what that's all about. It was a sensual indulgence of his lustful flesh. Now I want to draw a contemporary parallel here and I know I'm like like walking on thin ice here, okay? Because this is a sensitive topic for us to talk about. And some of you are thinking, well, we don't have concubines uh, today. Uh, I want you to think a little bit harder about this. Like what was going on with the concubines and all the wives? Solomon collected these women for his own narcissistic and sexual purposes. And so in doing that, he robbed them of their humanity and dignity as individuals created in the image of God. This is exactly what happens in our sexual sins to this day. All kinds of sexual sin. Um, now, some of this in our culture is starting to be talked about a little bit more. And, and I actually think, you know, to a large extent, that's a very good thing. I wanna talk about just one this morning that I know is just gonna instantly create sort of a a flood of of shame and guilt in many in the room. I wanna talk about pornography. And I don't go there to sort of layer you with guilt. I go there because I wanna help all of us see something, something really important. Now, pornography, when you really back away and think about what it is, you know, it seems so harmless, okay? Pornography is actually denigrating and devaluing human beings. How can I say that? Why can I say that? Because what's actually happening is we are objectifying them and essentially saying, your value to me is what I can consume for my lust and to satiate my pleasure, satiate my lust. And then I'm going to set aside. I'm going to delete the file. I'm going to you know, close the website, hide my tracks. I'm going to turn off the, the phone, whatever it is. Now, I'm not saying concubines and porn are exactly the same thing. They're clearly not. I'm simply saying they may have more in common at the root level than we think they do. So here's how we can think a little bit more clearly and hopefully see a little bit more clearly. Uh, Some of our strategies, men and women, for filling the empty and unsatisfying places in our lives, and I know those are real, I know those are there, empty, unsatisfying places. Some of our strategies for filling them have a damaging impact on other people. All right, so not only do our strategies fail to give us life, not only are they just like a walk on a treadmill, but sometimes they can actually do damage and rob life from other people. And this is actually what was going on with Solomon. And by the way, we read in 1 Kings that Solomon's sexual indulgences were his downfall. They were destructive to his soul. They pulled him toward idolatry. They ultimately shipwrecked his family. The kingdom splits apart when Solomon dies because his family. And ultimately, it was destructive toward God's kingdom and the leader that he had placed over Israel. Now, if this is an area of struggle for you, and, and I statistically speaking, there's a lot of us, I mean, it's just let's just let's just say all of us at some level, lust pornography and thoughts in our minds as an area of struggle for so many of us, can I encourage us also, we need to talk about it. We need to talk about it. We can't allow this to be an unspoken struggle anymore. There's no life in it. And you know, you kind of know that when you get deep down in it, you're like, oh, well, there's no single image or video you're ever going to see that's going to satisfy and fulfill you. And so then there's another, and then there's another, and there's another night a week later and a month later and it builds, et cetera. There's no life in it, but you know where you'll find a lot of life? You'll find a lot of life in helping one another take steps toward health. You'll find a lot of life there for you and for others that you're helping. So let's not hide any longer in this. It is eating our lunch and we cannot afford to. Let's move on for the sake of time, verse nine and 10. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Now, this is not so different than you and I. You know, it's like, it's hard to resist those donuts in the grocery store, you know, whatever it is, you know, whatever your you know, pet craving is, it's hard to resist that. And, and the, our, what our brains go is this is the reward for all my labor, right? So you see in Solomon, it's like he had it all and there seemed to be this sense in him that he deserved it. Like this is my reward for all my labor. This is a bit of a cautionary tale for us and we'll see that in the next verse. So we talked about the pursuit of pleasure. Now let's talk about the end result. In verse 11, thus I considered all my activities, which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. So he's summarizing the whole experiment. You know, he started with, you know, frivolous living and then he moved to alcohol and then he moved to work. All these great building projects, and you know, making his home more beautiful, and you know, adding a screen porch, you know, pond, and you know, getting horses, you know, whatever—all these things—and then he moved on from there. Music, sexual indulgences, even his own wisdom—you know, there's some pleasure in how famous he was because of his wisdom—and he's saying it all amounted to nothing. And just so we don't miss it, he uses three of his favorite phrases all together in this verse: "All was vanity," "Striving after the wind." There was no profit under the sun. So here's the lesson of our text. Chasing the pleasures of life, consciously or unconsciously, will not gain what you're looking for. They will not ultimately satisfy. They will not ultimately fulfill. We know this in our heads. We live like we don't believe it. We're going from one pleasure to another pleasure to another pleasure. Now, here's how I want to spend the rest of our time. How are we to live in a society and culture where the pleasures of life are all around us, constantly clamoring for our attention. See me, taste me, touch me, enjoy me. Like, like how are we to live as Christians in this environment? Um, should we ignore them? We can't. Nor, nor should we. We'll get there. Should we feel guilty when we enjoy them? that's an important question for us to wrestle through. How much is too much? A very important question. How do we navigate this cultural landscape with limitless sensory pleasures? This is where we're going to go for the rest of our time. Now, to get there, we we have to sort of move beyond Solomon in a way. Solomon doesn't give a clear answer in this passage. He, He wasn't writing for that particular purpose. Now, later in chapter two, he goes as far as he could go at his point in time with the wisdom that God had given him on this side of you know, God's progressive revelation. As far as Solomon can go later in chapter two, he eventually says, it's good to enjoy the good things, the good gifts in life God's given you because the rest of life's really hard and it's really short. So enjoy the pleasures and recognize their gifts of God. Great wisdom there. It's right on. It's inspired by God. The rest of scripture goes further. So we can actually go further than Solomon could. And so this is how I want us to spend our time thinking about this. Uh, To do that, we need to think about pleasure in light of the grand story of the Bible, in light of all 66 books of the Bible. All right, in other words, we need to develop a theology of pleasure. And I bet you may never have heard that phrase before, but if we do not have a good theology of pleasure, we're gonna get destroyed and we already are getting destroyed. We have to think rightly about pleasure so we can engage rightly with the pleasures that are in our lives. Now, first point I wanna make is we're developing a theology of pleasure based on the word of God here, is many people tend to automatically associate pleasure with sin. That's sloppy theology. And by the way, that wrongful thought that, that pleasure automatically equals sin, you know, you see that even in the grocery stores. It's like, you know, sinfully delicious. Have you thought about that before? And, and even broader culture, it's like um, at, at some point in time in our culture, the idea of naughtiness became this good thing. Well, I'm just a little bit naughty, you know, wink, wink. It's like, you know, they're associating pleasures with Sin in our our, our non Christian cultures, even you know, just sort of doing this and reinforcing this in us. Pleasure is not sinful. Can I say that again? Pleasure is not sinful, it is created by God. Now, there's no question that we tend to indulge in pleasure oftentimes in ways that are very sinful in ways that can wreck our lives, pull us away from our relationship with God, do damage to our family, create a sense of of lack of meaning in us. No question that all that can result to wrongfully engaging in the pleasure, but the pleasure itself is not the problem. The pleasure itself is not sinful. So the question is, what is God's purpose for pleasure? Like, why did he create a world with so many doggone wonderful, beautiful, feel-good things? Why does food taste so delicious? And why is a lot of that delicious tasting food bad for you? I don't know. I'm not going to answer that question. But, but what's God's purpose for the pleasure? Like why are there such pleasurable things all around? Let's start with this thought from Genesis 1 and 2. Okay. Scripture teaches us that before sin entered the world, everything mankind experienced was pleasurable. There was no weariness. There was no sourness. There was no toil. There was no... Mundane, there was nothing, it was all pleasurable. Sleep was pleasurable, work was pleasurable, life was pleasurable, marriage was pleasurable, relationship with God was pleasurable. What this means is that God created a pleasure filled world designed to be enjoyed and stewarded by us, His image bearers. And He designed us to enjoy it and steward the pleasures in this pleasure filled world with his blessing and in his presence. And those are the two key ideas I want you to get from Genesis 1 and 2 as it relates to the pleasures of life. So we're beginning our theology of pleasures, Genesis 1 and 2. God created you to enjoy pleasures. He did. He created you to enjoy them with his blessing and in his presence. Now, think about Adam and Eve's rebellion, the very first sin. They pursued something that looked good to their eyes, but they did it apart from the blessing of God and apart from the presence of God. In fact, that was the one thing that he said they can't touch. But even as you read Genesis 3, 6, it says, you know, the woman saw that it looked delicious and she saw with her eyes it was delightful and that, you know, it was, you know, worthy and all these kinds of things. And so apart from the blessing of God, apart from the presence of God, she ate, she gave to her husband, they ate together. And then of course they immediately hid because they felt shame. So the consequence of sin entering the world is the fallen creation. All right, we all there? You know that's The consequence of sin entering the world is the fallen creation. Solomon calls the fallen creation. Life under the sun, that's his vernacular for, for this fallen world that we live in. Among other things, life in fallen world means that the pleasures of life are almost always separated from the good giver of the pleasures. So they're associated with sin just because they feel good. There's this view of God that he's some cosmic killjoy out there that doesn't want you to enjoy good things. That's not solid theological thinking. Now, the best we can do, life under the sun, apart from God, is to grab onto the little bits and pieces of pleasurable things that are, that are the remnants of a broken garden of Eden. Think of it that way is just grab onto these bits and pieces and try to get as much fulfillment out of them as we can. This is what Solomon was doing, and it went nowhere. And so in a fallen creation, which is where you and I live, the pleasures of life are deadened to an extent. And most importantly, they have been separated from their true meaning. True meaning is to enjoy them with the blessing of God in the presence of God. So Solomon's a fantastic example of this. Uh, did you notice a two-word phrase that was repeated over and over and over again in Solomon's hedonistic quest? Now, I purposely didn't call it out because I wanted to, you to see it. I wanted to emphasize it here. L- look back. I won't put it on the screen, but, but just look it down at your Bibles. Look at verse four. Look at verse five. Look at verse six. And look at verse 8. What two-word phrase is repeated over and over and over again throughout those verses? Someone shout it out. For myself. For myself. You know, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, for myself. It's six times just in those four verses. So God never intended life's pleasures to be indulged in for selfish gain. You know. And yet, is it not true that sinful people can't help but do that because our sinful nature is selfish? Martin Luther described our sinful nature as the soul turned in against itself. It's this black hole of selfishness, and that's the root of our sin. We're selfish. We can't help engage the pleasures of life for myself greedily because we're starving inside. It's like, who wouldn't grab onto this stuff for myself greedily? If I don't get what I can get, no one's gonna give it to me, you see. And so the only way the pleasures of life can be redeemed is if something is done about our selfishness problem, i.e., something is done about our sin problem. That's the only way the pleasures in life can be redeemed. Who does that point you toward theologically? Theologically. Who's gonna do something about our sin problem? Who's gonna come and rescue us from our black hole selfishness of me, me, me? Who's gonna do that? Yeah, 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 thank you. Like, you know, indulge me in this. Jesus, right? So think about Jesus coming. Think about how much of Jesus' ministry was material, was tangible, was enjoyable. He actually got accused of being a drunkard. and and being a glutton because he went to so many parties. His first miracle, he turned water into wine. You see, it's interesting how Jesus engaged the pleasures of life. But more importantly, Jesus came to rescue us and bring us back into relationship with the Father so that paradise will one day be restored now let's go to Revelation 21, 22. We started at the beginning, we got in the middle of the Bible, now we're going to the very end. What you see in Revelation 21, 22 is Eden restored, paradise regained. And it's remarkable how many similarities there are between the new earth that you see in those chapters and the first earth you see in the first two chapters of the Bible. Now, here's something we need to correct in our theology. And this is a really big deal. I think we've gotten off track with this. The story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, the story of redemption in the scripture is as much a material story as it is a spiritual story. Are you tracking with me at all on that? In other words, the creation was material sight, sounds, tastes, pleasures you could experience with the five senses God gave you. The vision of the new heaven and the new earth, we're not gonna be disembodied spirits. We've got renewed bodies, there's beauty, there will be sights and sounds and tastes. Material creation will be redeemed. God's creation is material, not immaterial. You see that all throughout the Bible, it has substance to it. Everything will be restored and made new that's the picture of where we're going. So what does it mean for us? How do we live in the here and now? I've really got to speed up through this last part. We'll get there. Here's what this means. And, and I think this is, this is honestly one of the most profound things that I've seen in scripture as I've thought about the theology of pleasure. Okay, here it is. The good things in life when rightly enjoyed are the truest things in life. Good things in life, when rightly enjoyed, are the truest things in life. How can I say that? That that almost sounds, you know, like heretical. Because the good things in life, when rightly enjoyed, point us back to what we were made for in the beginning and point us forward to our true lives eternally where we will be living. The good things in life are, in a sense, the truest things in life. This is why you instinctively are trying to create your own little personal paradise. Now... Everyone on earth is doing that in their own way and in as much resources as they have. Very few people realize that doing that apart from the blessing and presence of their creator is meaningless. So how do we get the blessing and presence of our creator? Faith in Jesus Christ. You see how everything keeps coming back to him. Everything always is gonna come back to Jesus. The believer in Jesus has been reunited relationally with the Father and you have the presence of the Spirit in you. Therefore, you can recognize the pleasures of life as good gifts from the Father and enjoy them with his blessing and with his presence, the Spirit of God in you. So this is how we're going to redeem the pleasures of life. Not us that's going to do the redeeming, but we're going to change our thoughts about it. I hope these ideas, these thoughts, this theology of pleasure actually frees you up and gives you some joy and and energy to, to eat a burrito, you know, like to enjoy the good things that God has to offer. But you almost felt this coming. Big word of caution. Big word of caution before you, you know, go eat the burrito Uh, Even as redeemed people, it's still so easy to abuse the God-given pleasures of life. And so they often still become ways that are destructive and sinful rather than life-giving and meaningful. So what are we going to do about this? Here's the so what part of the message. We must learn to become people who enjoy the pleasures of life in ways that glorify God. That's the big idea. You you can say amen. That's fine. That's good. Now, we've got to wrestle this down with good thinking, i.e. good theology, and good practice, good living. We've got to live God's word, not just know God's word, right? So we're going to think rightly about God's pleasures, and we're going to practice enjoying the pleasures of life together. So ushers, come on down. We've got something for you in these little baskets, you know? Normally we ask you to to put something in the basket. This time we want you to take something out of the basket. Everybody grab one of these as it comes around. All right, what you have in these baskets is a little morsel of paradise. (laughs) You've got a chocolate. All right, little Hershey's Kiss. All right, literally, everybody everybody grab one of these. And even if you don't like chocolate, it can still be representative to you of things that you do love, okay? You know, so I don't want to like you know, allergies or whatever, apologize. You know, keep it in the wrapper. Uh, but but just hold on to that chocolate. And could you toss me one up here? All right, now, you're gonna, thank you. You're gonna hold on to this as, as I sort of describe and talk about this. This represents all the things in life that you go to for pleasure. Like, w- what do you enjoy for your taste buds? What's your favorite food? What kind of music do you like to listen to? What's your favorite place to go on vacation? Like, if you could just design paradise for your home, what would it look like? All that's kind of represented here. I want you to think about this Hershey's kiss as a representation of all the good pleasures in life that you have the opportunity in your short years here to enjoy. But I want to help you. I want to actually give you some practice to enjoy them rightly. Because if you don't, they're gonna eat your lunch rather than the other way around. Yeah, you follow that? Okay, so let me put this on the screen um, I've tried to just create a a simple process by which you can enjoy the pleasures of life. And there's three steps to it. And I've tried to make it simple so that you can hopefully remember it, okay? Um, Number one, invite God into the experience. Number two, praise him for his good creation. Number three, anticipate the fulfillment that is yet to come. So let me have a minute just to talk about each three of these because they're really important and they kind of build on each other. So we'll just leave them on the screen for quite a while here. Number one, invite God into the experience. We never do this almost with the pleasures and we should. If we are designed to engage the pleasures of life with the blessing of our creator and with the presence of our creator, we need to invite him to the experience of enjoying the pleasure that you're enjoying. This is a wonderful guardrail for you because it keeps you from indulging in the kinds of pleasures that you would not want God to be with you in. You follow me in that? So this is a guardrail for us. You invite God into the experience. Say, God, you know, I'm going to watch this movie. I'm going to go on this vacation. I'm going to eat this delicious piece of chocolate. I want to acknowledge your presence with me. And I want to invite you into this pleasurable experience. Number two, number two, praise him for his good creation. James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. That includes chocolate. You know, you know, some of you are, are being smart and you're like, oh, God didn't make chocolate. You know, it's a man-made thing. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> you know, God made that plant. God gave to human beings the creativity and intellect, knowing they would extract paradise from the plant and put it in all kinds of wonderful forms. Now, I actually argued for dark chocolate, but we decided that, you know, milk chocolate was probably more universally uh, liked, all right? Um, and chocolate's actually one of mine, you know, along with, uh, you know, Tex-Mex and other things. So, so praise God for his good creation, okay? So you want to give thanks and praise to the giver of the good gift, That's step two. And you can do these almost, you know, unconsciously. No, no. Consciously for a long time until you get them to that unconscious competence. Uh, Step three, anticipate the fulfillment that is yet to come. This one's really important. Why do you anticipate the fulfillment? And by the way, I'm not talking about anticipating eating it. I'm talking about the act of eating it is anticipating a greater fulfillment yet to come. Here's why you do that. If you do not do step three, you will falsely, foolishly think that fulfillment is found in the pleasure itself. This chocolate will not satisfy your depression. This chocolate will not satisfy your longing, your deepest hunger. It will not do it, no matter how much of it you eat. So we eat this in anticipation of the true fulfillment. It's like this is an appetizer and it stirs in us even deeper desires for Jesus to come again. So it's a celebration and it's a longing at the same time. It's like, thank you for this gift and please come and make everything right. So, you know, streets of gold and, you know, fountains of chocolate. I added that last part, but I think it's gonna be there. (laughs) Now, we are literally gonna practice for all of you who would like to. So go ahead and unwrap, unwrap the chocolate. Uh, We need to practice this as silly as it seems. Okay. We've got to practice this. Otherwise the pleasures of life wrongly engaged in are going to destroy our spiritual vibrancy. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to invite God into the presence, into the experience. Sorry. We're going to praise him for his good creation. He has given to us and we're going to anticipate the fulfillment that is yet to come. Um, Go ahead and close your eyes just to help us focus. And, and I'll tell you when it's time to eat. Some of you already like jumped ahead. you know. I get it. It's no judgment from me. Father, we invite you into this experience. We do not want to enjoy life apart from you. And so would you, by your Spirit's presence with us, enjoy this with us right now? Uh, Church, go ahead and and put that in your mouth. Enjoy it. Savor it, like slowly. (laughs) I want you to concentrate on the flavors, the sensations. There's a, a, a taste, there's a smell, there's a touch. They combine to create a reaction of pleasure in our brain. And so, Father, we praise you for all of that. You did not have to create things that taste so good. You did not have to create our mind to sense and enjoy and experience pleasure. And yet you did. So we praise you for the pleasures of life and this chocolate in particular. And finally, Father, even as we... Finish consuming this little morsel, we anticipate true fulfillment that is yet to come. We recognize that chocolate will not satisfy, nor will sex, nor will vacations, nor will great work, nor will anything ultimately bring true meaning and true satisfaction to our lives. This is the wisdom of Solomon. And yet, as believers in Jesus, we lean toward full Fulfillment. We lean toward, we anticipate, we eat this chocolate as an appetizer of what is yet to come. And we thank you that we can enjoy the pleasures of life in a way that brings you glory and honor and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. Here's how I want to send you out, all right? You've practiced. You know what to do. I guarantee before your head hits that pillow tonight, you've probably got a dozen little pleasures between now and then, at least, all right? Remember this, invite God into the experience, praise him for the good creation, anticipate the fulfillment that is yet to come. Here's the benediction I wanna send you out with. God has created his world with so many beautiful, pleasurable things. And he has given you five senses by which to enjoy them. And in Jesus Christ, he's given you the spirit to enjoy them with his blessing and in his presence. So go out and live. But do not live as people who think they will find satisfaction and meaning in the pleasures themselves. Live as people who know the truth, the satisfaction and meaning is found in the giver of the pleasures. Go that way and we'll see you soon. Have a great day.